6 in Ephesians. Let me pray, and then we'll hear the, the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. Father, thank you for transforming grace. And we pray now that you would open our understanding so that we may understand more fully the hope of our calling in Christ and the immeasurable riches of the inheritance of your saints in Christ. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to accept your word today as it is, not the words of man, but the word of God. Help us to receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls and be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9 reads, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. I want to label the message, the biblical role of Christian co-workers. The biblical role of Christian co-workers. Howard Hendricks wrote, about being scheduled for a flight that was delayed and then delayed again and delayed once more. The flight attendants sought to make it up to the passengers by offering free drinks. Of course, one fellow had one too many drinks became loud and boisterous, obnoxious and disrespectful, but Hendricks noted that the flight attendant did not respond in the same manner. Before he deplaned, he approached the flight attendant and let her know that he had been flying American Airlines for decades. He was the highest level of frequent flyer and that he wanted her name so that he could write a letter to the company to commend her and to let them know what a good job she had done on the flight. She expressed thanks, but said the letter would not be necessary. Here was her explanation. I don't actually work for American Airlines. I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. I just happened to be assigned at American Airlines. 
This is the point of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. When you get beyond the controversial terminology, the heart of this text is intended to teach that both Christian employees and Christian employers work for Christ, not for man. Christian employees and Christian employers work for Christ and not for man. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 tells us the key to living out the life of our faith in Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. You cannot live for Christ in your own strength. The human spirit fails unless the Holy Spirit fills. From verse 19 of chapter 5 through chapter 6 verse 9, Paul will expound on the characteristics of the Spirit-filled life. In summary, he will teach that the evidence that you are filled with the Spirit is best seen in how you treat other people. Verse 21, chapter 5, says that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9, he becomes more specific, discussing how we should honor Christ in our relationships at home, at work, husbands and wives, children and parents, and now bond servants and their masters. So each week, uh, I've messed up a lot of Bibles making notes and stuff in them in my study. So now what I do is I just type out the text on a piece of paper and mark up that paper so I don't keep messing up the Bible. So I have a nice, clean, pretty pulpit Bible to preach from on Sunday mornings. And I work from that document, not my Bible. And this morning in this first service at 745, I had been dealing with um, the text uh, from other Bibles. And I didn't really look at it from my pulpit Bible until I started reading for the sermon at 745 and saw that in my pulpit Bible, the language is cleaned up a little bit so it don't offend people like you. <laughs> the first word of verse 5 in my Bible here says, bond servants. But that's not really what Paul is talking about. He's talking about slaves. We're not comfortable with that word, slave especially those of us whose, you know, skin has been kissed by nature's son. We are quick to turn you off when you start talking about slaves and masters. But there is an important point in the text that you need to get. And to get it, you need to recognize that in a real sense, the slavery that Paul is addressing here in the text is not to be parallel to chattel slavery that is the evil of American history where people owned people and those persons who were slaves were not considered people at all but tools. Predominantly in the ancient world of Asia Minor, slavery was not chattel slavery but indentured servanthood. That's for the translation, which is a legitimate translation, bond servant. 
for employment, a servant would bind himself to a master. Or, in other instances, if you owed a debt that you could not pay, you became a slave to work off your debt, and thus a bond servant. The kind of slavery addressed here in the ancient world, the New Testament in the Greco-Roman environment, was different than the evils of American history as we know it, because it was, it was not cultural or racial, and in most instances, not permanent. To say it was not cultural is to mean that to, for a person to be a slave was not in and of itself a statement about that person's status in society. To get a sense of this, just read the Gospels. You'll read in the parables of Jesus on one occasion, he'll talk about a master who has servants working in the field. They are farm hands. But in other parables, for instance, in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, talents represented huge amounts of money. And in Matthew 25, a master had servants and gave to one five talents, another two talents, and another one talent. That farmhand was just a day laborer. Those men who were given talents are like CEOs, executives, who were left to invest their master's money. And in fact, when he returned, he made them ruler over more things. So it was not a statement about one's role or one's social standing. A master, a servant that is, could be a ruler in his master's household. Likewise, it was not a necessarily racial designation. This was just a general part of Greco-Roman society. In the city of Ephesus, to which Paul writes, we, we are told that at least a third of the citizens of Ephesus would have been classified as slaves. It was not a distinction of race as blacks were subjugated to whites in American history, but people of the same race, nationality, and background served in different roles depending on whether or not they were a slave or master. And as I mentioned, in most instances, this was not permanent. You were not the permanent possession of a master. You are, in most instances, a bond servant who served in that role for an extended period or a specified period. But even with those qualifications, which are important qualifications, it doesn't get us out of the big question, why does Scripture not just outright condemn slavery and call for its abolition? Indeed, Paul in this text does not commend nor condemn slavery. Because this was not the focus of his gospel mission and the focus of what God intended to be communicated in the text. You will not find here or in anywhere in the New Testament statements to overthrow the institution of slavery. But what you will find in this text are principles to undermine the foundation of slavery. I want you to hear that again. Paul was not trying to overthrow the institution of slavery. He did not have the money, the clout, the power to do that. 
But he did teach in a way that would undermine, erode the foundation of, of the institution of slavery. And it worked in the ancient world, and it worked for Christians who thought this way even in the abolitionist movements of modern history. Very early on, I read a book, a little book, but it had a shaping effect on my theological understanding of how the Christian church should engage the surrounding culture. I didn't understand everything in the book, but I got the heart of it, and I could just state it. The summary of the book seemed to me to be this, let the church be the church. Later, those same authors wrote a follow-up to their book to respond to critics who claimed that they were trying to have Christians to withdraw from the world and not engage the surrounding culture. And in that follow-up book, the authors denied the claim that they were trying to get Christians to, in, to, dis, to withdraw from the world. They said, we are not trying to stop Christians from engaging the culture, but our point is this. That if the church is to engage the culture, the church should engage the culture as the church. That's how the church must engage the things that happen in the culture around us. Not as a civil rights institution, but as the church. We engage the culture as the church. Let me try it another way. Not as Republicans and Democrats. Not as conservatives or liberals. Not as blacks or whites. But as the church. You see, Paul talks the way he does here because gospel transformation happens. Listen to this sentence. Gospel transformation happens by changing people, not institutions. I'm, I feel sorry for you if you think if a certain person get in the White House, then it'll fix everything in the country. Or if a certain law is passed. Or if a certain party gets control of the government. Or if a certain uh, kind of judge gets on the Supreme Court. All of those things have their place. But real change doesn't happen merely by changing institutions. You got to change people. And the church continuously gets disappointed by the world because we foolishly keep expecting unsaved people to do saved stuff. Gospel transformation happens by changing people, not institutions. And so this is why Paul does not try to start a revolution to overthrow the institution of slavery, but he teaches gospel-saturated principles to undermine, eat away at the foundation of the institution of slavery so that it will not be able to stand. And listen to what he said. If you are a slave, do your work like a Christian. 
And if you're a master, do your work like a Christian. He is saying to us a truth that applies to wherever you work. He is saying you transform your job by transferring your boss. Let me try that again. You can transform your workplace by transferring your boss. The question of the text is this. Do you know who you really working for? Both Christian employees and Christian employers work for Christ and not for man. Am I making sense? Let me unpack that for you as quickly as I can. First, Paul says in verses 5 through 8, that Christian employees work for Christ. Here, Paul addresses the slaves who are considered to be a part of the family structure. This is why they are addressed in the household codes. Wives, husbands, children, father, and now slaves who were considered a part of the family structure. And yet, he addresses them specifically, affirming the personhood of these slaves. And not just their personhood, but he lays before them expectations that can only be accomplished by being filled with the Spirit. These are Christian slaves. He says there is a will for, for you from God in the carrying out of your work. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. The word here, obey, is the same word used in verse 1 where children are told to obey their parents, and that is by no mistake. Here we are confronted with the principle of kingdom authority. Listen to it. You can never get over what God has put under you until you get under what God has put over you. And, and if you work on a job, God has placed authority over you. And you are to obey those in authority over you. That does not mean they can dictate your personal or family life. That's not what this is suggesting. But to the degree that you are under their authority in the workplace, the text says you are to obey them. This, and it, the grammar here denotes continual, perpetual, habitual action. It means don't just do it when you feel like doing it. You are to obey those in authority over you at work. They have been placed over authority, an authority over you. If it does not, if it does not fall into the category of Acts 4, verses 19 and 20, where you must say that we have to obey God rather than man, if it is not a direct violation of what God explicitly commands, he says. He says, obey those that are placing authority over you on the job. They have legitimate authority over you. But would you notice, he says, they also have 
limited authority over you. Watch the phrase. Obey your earthly master. We'll see in a few minutes. There's a heavenly master who's in charge over everybody. But he says, you want to be a witness for Christ? Be a good employee on the job. How do you do that? He first says, do your work with fear and trembling. That is, do your work with reverence. Do your work with reverence. The term here, fear and trembling, means a holy anxiety to do right. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, you are to live out the Christian life with a holy anxiety, a desperate desire, a consuming passion to please the Lord. You do not want to do anything that disobeys or dishonors the Lord. You want to do everything that obeys and honors the Lord. You do your work with fear and trembling. And church, I believe that's how Paul is speaking here. Fear and trembling is not about how you view the boss. It's how you view Christ while you work. You do your work with fear and trembling toward the Lord and anxious and holy anxiety to do what is right before the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I, I submit to you, but he says it ain't got nothing to do with you. I do it for Christ's sake. That's the spirit of chapter 6, verse 5, he says. We are to obey earthly masters with fear and trembling. With reverence, with a worshipful attitude that tries to please the Lord. Let me, let me just throw something big out there. This whole fear and trembling suggests, church, that you are not really trying to please the Lord, to honor the Lord on Sunday morning if you ain't trying to honor him on Monday morning. <laughs> the same reverence for Christ with which you took the Lord's table this morning ought to be the way you do your job in the morning. You ought to do your work reverently, worshipfully. In the Old Testament, there was a sanctuary. We call this a sanctuary. The dwelling place of God. And in the Old Testament, indeed, the temple, a physical structure, was the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. But because of Christ, God the Spirit lives in you. So guess what? The sanctuary ain't on Beaver Street. It's in you. And hallowed be thy name should be the governing principle when you come to church on Sunday morning. And hallowed be thy name should be the governing principle when you go to work on Monday morning. 
Do your work with reverence, but then do your work with sincerity. Do your work with sincerity. I'm almost appreciating the baby crying. That's all the amens I'm going to get today, so <laughs> might as well just let it be. <laughs> do your work sincerely. Look at the next phrase of verse 5. Obey earthly masters, not just with fear and trembling, but with a sincere heart. That word sincere means single. Sincere means single. It is the same Greek word translated in the New Testament as generosity. For generosity to be generosity, it must be single. That is, sincerity is the opposite of duplicity. You know, a person can seem generous without being generous. You can be generous with ulterior motives. The, the word sincere, single, means that what's in your hand lines up with what's in your heart. You don't do the right thing for the wrong reasons. You don't do the right thing with the wrong attitudes. You don't do the right thing with the wrong motivation. You are to do your work with sincerity of heart. Same kind of language for worship. Same kind of language for giving. Paul is saying that your work does not honor Christ if your work is not the overflow of a heart that is devoted to Jesus Christ. You are to do your work with sincerity. You say, HB, how? Just help, doc, just help me. How? When I, I work in a wretched place, I work with people who get on my last nerve. I work for a person who is not worthy of respect. How am I to work with sincerity of heart? Look at the next phrase. As you would Christ. Listen to him. You don't work for the company. You work for Christ. You, you don't work for the client. You work for Christ. You don't work for the customer. You work for Christ. And so he sanctifies work that may be done in a dreadful place by saying, no matter how bad your workplace is, just remember who you really work for. And when you recognize that you are working for Christ, Listen to what he says in verse 6. You won't do your work with eye fervent. Scholars think Paul made this word up. It's just a compound word for eye and servant. Eye servant. And what it means is, if you are working for Christ, not the boss, not the manager, not the foreman, not the customer, not the client, if you are working for Christ, 
You won't have an attitude or ethic on the job that only works or only works for real or only works hard when the boss is looking. Christians should not be the kind of employees who play around on social media until they hear the manager is coming. Where that baby at? I need that baby. <laughs> you don't do it with, with eye service. The geographical presence of your boss, foreman, manager should not make a difference in the ethic of your work because as a Christian, you know, watch me, the boss is always looking on. And so you don't work for, with eye service and you don't work as people pleasers. You, you work to please God, not man. Woe unto you. If you do what you're doing, trying to please people. Whole story is told of the father and son that walked their mule to the marketplace to sell the mule in the marketplace. As they're walking the path, they pass by some people that say, look at that, that's a shame. They got this strong mule and these two fools are walking. They heard that, so the son got on and the daddy walked. They passed another group of people that said, look at that, that's a shame. That son riding and making this old man walk while he ride. They heard that, so the son got off and the daddy got on. And they passed another group of people that said, look at that, that's a shame. That old man riding in comfort and making his young boy walk like that. So they heard that and they both got on and passed another group of people that said, look at that, that's a shame. They're going to work that poor mule to death. <laughs> you get the point of the story, don't you? That if you live for other people's opinion, you will either lose your mule or lose your mind. So the text says, when you know who you are working for, you won't be a people pleaser. You won't do your work as eye service or as a people pleaser, but as a bond servant for Christ. Underline this next phrase. This is the ethic of the Christian worker. On your job, you're to do the will of God from the heart. My job as a Christian is not to fulfill my job description. My job on my job is to do the will of God from the heart. 
You're to do your work reverently. You're to do your work sincerely. And then you're to do your work with goodwill. Verse 7 says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The term goodwill used only here refers to zeal and enthusiasm, and charity and benevolence and cheerfulness and willingness. You are to do your work from a good will. What do I do if I work in an environment that's dog eat dog? Text says, if you live and work in a dog eat dog environment, the way you survive is don't be a dog. <laughs> be different. Do your work with good will. Do your work with zeal. With passion. With enthusiasm. Do you know what Paul is saying here? If you are a Christian, you ought to be one of the best employees on your job. If you are a Christian, you should not be showing up late <laughs> and leaving early. If you are a Christian, you should not be known for having a bad attitude and being hard to work with. If you are a Christian, you should, you should do, if you are paid for an hour, you should work for an hour. If you are a Christian, you ought to give your best on the job. You to do your work with goodwill. Again, how do you do that, HV? Verse 7. As to the Lord and not to man. Let me pause here and show you what Paul, the big truth Paul is saying. Paul is saying if you are a Christian, you cannot create a false dichotomy between what is secular and what is spiritual. If you are a Christian, everything is spiritual. Everything is to be done for the Lord. You need Bible for that? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6 says it this way. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. But you must acknowledge him in all your ways. That is, you, talk, you acknowledge him at home, at church. And at work. Why should you do that? Look at the first word of verse 8. This blesses me. These are high commands about Christians' work ethic. But, but watch the rationale. The reason why you ought to be different on your job is because verse 8 says, you know some stuff. Frederick Wigner has a little book called Wishful Thinking. He subtitles it a, book, a seeker's lexicon where he defines 
Christian truth for the uninitiated. In that little book, he defines a Christian. He rambles for several chapters. But at the end of the definition, he says, in the final analysis, Christians are not necessarily nicer people than everyone else. They're just better informed. That's why you ought to be different on the job. You know some stuff the world does not know. It's a whole sermon that would require to deal with what you know. Here's one of the things you ought to know. You ought to know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Watch me. Your boss may not pay you what you worth. Y'all ain't in here with me. But if you work for the Lord, he will pay you back and reward you for the good you have done. You, you, you know, Working for Jesus may be hard, but it's got great retirement benefits. But that's not even what Paul says here. He's not talking about reward in heaven. He doesn't say. He just says the Lord will make sure you receive what you're supposed to get. I believe he'll do that in the final analysis, but he's able to do that right now. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. You do your work, and, 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 and the Lord knows how to take care of you. He will take care of you. I'm telling you what I know. I got called to my church, first church when I was 17 years old. They were trying to put me out by the time I was 21. In court with church folk, 21 years old, my 21st birthday. My church loved me. There was no way they could vote me out of a small group of leaders. My church loved me. They weren't going to let me go. But the small group of leaders said, we know how to get rid of them. We'll hit them in the pocket. And they stopped paying me. Said, he ain't going to stay around long. If you stop paying them. Taught me an early lesson that to be a faithful Christian minister, you can't have a price tag on your ministry. You can't, can't be motivated by money. They took my salary and spread it out over the rest of the staff. Took my money and gave the musicians a raise with it. Including my mama who played the piano. <laughs> That's the truth. I ain't told her that either. There's a witness in this room. There's a witness in this room. They stopped paying me. And I gained weight. After they stopped paying me. 
I went from driving a Volkswagen to a Volvo after they stopped paying me. They didn't pay me, but a group of members met on Monday nights and divided up my bills to pay all my bills after they stopped. Y'all not listening to me. I, I'm saying if you just do what's pleasing to the Lord, the Lord will take care of you. He knows how to reward you. He knows how to take care of you. He knows how to provide for you. He knows how to make people that don't even like you speak up for you. He knows how to make people that don't even know you be a blessing to you. Have I got a witness? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. That's why I just try not to sin against God by worry. And I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but God got a good track record with me. And I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me alone. I don't care what the economy is doing. He didn't teach me how to swim just to let me drown. If I trusted him, God will take care of me. And he'll do it for you. You just got to know who you're working for. I got one more verse. I got one more verse. Paul says in verses 5 through 8, the Christian employees work for the Lord. But now verse 9 says, and I'll, I'll get through this quickly. Christian employers work for the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. You the boss, but you still got a boss. It's your company, but it ain't really your company. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You got the office on the highest floor? There's an office that's higher than your office. And somebody's sitting on the throne that you got to answer to. So listen to him saying, verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening, knowing that. He who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Masters, you, you got somebody to answer to. And you need to recognize that you have a master so that it will shape how you treat those under your authority. Listen. You know, uh, there are two times that test and reveal a man's character. Times of adversity and times of prosperity. Some people can't keep their sanity when the cup is empty. 
but others can't keep their balance when the cup is full. And they get drunk on their own blessings and lose their sense of spiritual equilibrium and forget who gave them what they have. Paul says, you in charge, but forget, don't forget that somebody in charge of you. And the evidence that you recognize will be how you treat those under your authority. Have you ever read the book of Ruth? I hope you've read the book of Ruth. If not, that's homework. Read the book of Ruth. <laughs> Two widows, Naomi, Ruth, are in desperate straits. God uses a man named Boaz to redeem them. Boaz enters the story at Ruth chapter 2, verse 4. It's his first scene in the story. We are being introduced to Boaz for the first time. What will the text tell us to let us know that Boaz is the hero of the story? He's a good man. He's a godly man. He's a generous man. He's a gracious man. How will the text tell us that in its opening picture of Boaz? It tells us that in Ruth 2 and 4 by the fact that when he showed up at the work site, Boaz said to his employees, the Lord be with you today. And his employees said back to him, and the Lord bless you today. Does that sound like Monday morning at your job? <laughs> the, the, the Bible says the reason we know Boaz was a good man was that he was kind to people that wasn't even on his level. So he said, all right, it's not fair. There's all these commands, all these verses to the slaves, and he, he don't say much or nothing to the master. One verse for the master? Yes, but listen to what he says. Masters, everything I just told them, you do the same to them. Work with fear and trembling. Work with a sincere heart. Work as to Christ. Work not with eye service. Work not as people pleasers. Work as bond servants of Christ. Work doing the will of God from the heart. Work serving with goodwill as to the Lord, not to man. Work knowing that whatever good you do, the Lord will make sure you receive it back. Do this. This is an application of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. The, the golden rule says, whatever good you want others to do to you, do also unto them. Do the same to them and stop your threatening. Interesting. He doesn't say what they do. He says the sign that you honor Christ is how you talk to people. Stop threatening. Here we find that term again. Knowing. Knowing. Knowing, you, you, you have to stop threatening. You have to do the same because you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There's a play on words here. 
The Greek word translated master in this paragraph is also the Greek word translated Lord. You a Lord over others, but you got a Lord over you. And with him, there is no partiality. Listen to this. Watch the play on words here again. Verse 5 says, obey your earthly master. But now in verse 9, he says, you and your slaves got a master, and he ain't on earth. He's in heaven. Don't discount that, because Psalm 103, verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens doing whatever pleases him. There's a master in heaven. Here's my final word. And with him there is no partiality. The word partiality refers to favoritism. It literally means to look at the face. The idea is that there are those who look at outward appearances and judges between one and another. All of my adult life I've been traveling to preach. When I was a much younger man, I just determined if I had to be flying, I'm going to be comfortable. I'd throw on my jeans and sneakers, put my feet in the bag, check the bag, and be comfortable. I had a couple of instances where the flight was late or they lost my bag and I had to get up and preach in jeans. And, and I said, maybe I should just start traveling with my work clothes on <laughs> just in case. And in the process, I found out when I started wearing my, you know, preaching uniform to the airport, people treat you a little nicer <laughs> than they do in the blue jeans. They look a little more kind and they're a little more respectful based upon how you dress. That's the culture we live in and we need to teach our young people that. That's a whole nother sermon. But what Paul is saying is, God doesn't judge by what you wear, by what you look like, by where you live, by what prefix you got after your name and what suffix you got after your name. God does not judge by what you drive, by how much money you have in the bank. He's the master who is in heaven, and he doesn't play favorites. If you serve him, he'll take care of you. Or if I could say it the way I like to say it. If you take care of God's business, God will take care of your business. I'm finished. God be praised for his work. Please stand with us. Amen. Praise God for the word that was preached this morning. But that word always calls for a response. Listen, God is always God. At the workplace, here this morning, when we leave this place, He's always God.